You're listening to episode 58 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds in the Black. He's Alex, I'm Tara, and to kick off a brand new year, we're opening up the mailbag to answer your questions. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of 2020. Happy New Year to all of you. And thanks for coming back for another year of Chirps. I'm Tara Wellman, joined as most always <laughs> by Alex Crisofoli. And Alex, uh, I hope your holidays have been great so far. How, uh, how was your Christmas? Christmas was great. I had a lot of good food, saw a lot of family. And I am now safe and comfortable at home. But uh, yeah, it was a good time. That is the best part, maybe, is the relaxing Mm -hmm. in between all of the craziness. I don't know about you, but people keep trying to do these like best of the decade lists. I have such a hard time not being so, um, I guess, having such a recency bias in these things that... I don't know, man. To imagine the best of the last 10 years is really hard for me. Well, I I tried on Twitter to do my five best songs of the century, which I guess covers <laughs> 20 years. And they were all from, I believe, the first half. So, okay. uh, yeah, maybe music's different. It has to uh, it has to stay with you. You have to see if it stands a certain test of time before you, uh, I don't know, elevate it to a certain certain status. Uh, well, what do you mean by give me an example of like a recency bias? Well, so a lot of these things are baseball related, well, right? Like the so home, like, oh, like the home, like the top ten home runs of the, right, uh, like, or yeah, like yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, best yeah. regular season win, and of course. Yeah the most fresh memories on your mind are the ones that you're going to be drawn to the fastest. Mm -hmm. Um, But man, I I bet, you know, we were talking last week about how quickly you forget exactly what happened in a game in April Mm -hmm. of the same year, much less some regular season game that was spectacular in its own right. Eight and a half years ago. I've, I have no idea how people come up with these lists. Yeah. So I, read Ann Rogers's uh, top 10, I guess, home runs of the last 10 years. Yeah. And uh, some of them were very obvious. Uh, Freeze, of course. Uh, and, you know, several other big home runs in postseason settings like Matt Adams off Kershaw, Colton Wong's walk-off uh, that same year. Uh, but they also had, like, the Yachty and Paul DeYoung going back-to-back, uh, you know, just, yeah. just this year. On uh, Game Three of that September series against the Cubs, and and I, I am curious, like what you said, like say that had happened in uh, 2014, but is that is that something we would still talk about? Probably not, right? Because it's just yeah. a regular season game. But I don't know. That game did kind of reach a level to where it might be one we talk about for a while. You know, I think because of the context of that whole series, everything about those individual plays from that weekend are magnified. I wonder how long that will last as we think back on the 2019 season and how some of those games hold up against other moments in time. Because I think even you brought it up on Twitter that Matt Carpenter home run 
really set the stage in the beginning game of the series for some of the heroics that we saw later. And we don't really talk a whole lot about that one because of what else happened in the series. So it is interesting to go back and kind of relive some of those moments and remember, oh yeah, that was that was pretty spectacular when it happened, but I just don't have the 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 memory, I guess, to be able to piece things together together over the course of an entire 10 year span. <laughs> I, I would just like, yeah, I'd just like to reiterate how crazy that series was. All, yeah. Every game won by a single run and most of them comebacks or at least high late. In fact, the games were all so crazy that I recall game two. I think that was an afternoon game, like maybe a Friday afternoon game, if that sounds right. Yeah. If I recall, that was a really good game. And I remember almost nothing about it uh, because the other three were on just another level. Uh, right. I, I think it was a low scoring game, if that sounds right, like two to one or three to yeah. two, something like that. But yeah, yeah, that, that, was, that series was just nuts. I still can't believe it happened. It was probably the high point of the season. I mean, the postseason was cool and the 10 run first inning against the Braves was cool. But man, as far as regular regular season play goes, that series was was something that I certainly never expected. And maybe that's why it stands out so much. Yeah, good as it gets. So what we're not going to do is create a top 10 list of the decade. Uh, Instead, what we've done over the course of the holiday week is collect some questions from you, our lovely listeners, and we're going to do our best to tackle them because there's still not a whole lot in the way of news from the Cardinals. So we're going to talk about some things that may affect the team coming up. And uh, we collected those questions from you guys on Twitter. So Alex, uh, I'm going to throw this one out first from our good friend, Daniel Shapta, who listens to the show every week and because of that has a vested interest in potentially keeping track of the batting leaders again in 2020. So Daniel asked, what will Paul DeYoung's batting average be in 2020? Or alternatively, will any Cardinal hit well enough that keeping track of the batting leaders will be relevant? This was sort of your pet project. Mm-hmm. Or you hoped it would be last year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I thought about this one, and I don't see Paul DeYoung being one of those guys who's going to stick around the top of a batting average leaderboard. But I'm going to predict he bats 233. Uh, He batted 233 last year. And so my inspiration uh, for this is Chris Davis. Uh, That's the K-H-R-I-S Davis, (laughs) who... uh, one of the more remarkable things uh, in baseball, in my opinion, in the last uh, in the last decade, since we were just talking about things of the decade, he hit two forty seven uh, for four straight seasons from <laughs> from uh, two thousand fifteen through uh, two thousand eighteen, uh, and he did it across two leagues. He did it the first year uh, with Milwaukee, and then the last three seasons uh, with the A's. Uh, it's crazy. You know, it was it became a joke after he did it the third time and everyone's like, well, surely he won't hit 247 again and he absolutely did. Uh so if I can't track Paul DeYoung uh if I can't keep track of Paul DeYoung in the midst of a batting race, uh I I can at least track to see how if he's uh staying close to that 233 mark, <laughs> which I don't know why I would want that. It's not uh, you know, not that Paul DeYoung needs to have a high batting average to have a good season. He certainly doesn't. He just had a good season, even though he hit 233. 
but yeah, I guess it would be nicer if he uh, had a bit of a higher batting average, even though that's not really a stat we care about anymore. Uh, regarding the second part of the question, the only p- two players I could think of, and the first was Tommy Edmond, but I don't see Tommy Edmond getting enough plate appearances to qualify for a batting title. Uh, so I'm going to say maybe Colton Wong, who I think led the team in hitting last year with like 285 or something like that. So maybe Colton Wong would be the best, uh, best person here. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? What, what do you think the both, to, to Paul DeYoung's batting average <laughs> next year and the second part? Well, so 233 was his average in 2019. Yeah. I think that I expect Paul DeYoung to keep, getting better assuming Paul DeYoung can stay healthy. So uh, healthy and rested enough to not be absolutely gassed by the end of August. So if they're able to find a way to get him rest, to find a way to maybe let Tommy Edmond play some of those innings at shortstop or whatever the case may be, I expect that he's capable of that batting average going up. There were times last year where he, I mean, obviously he came into play in the, the uh, batting leaders uh, conversation, right? So at, at times he can look like a player that can factor in with the consistent hitting as well as with the power. So it, I, I feel like it's fair to expect a, a bit of an improvement from Paul DeYoung this next year. So maybe like the 250 mark is not a huge uh, unrealistic expectation, but um I'm really bad at predicting things. So I, <laughs> that part of the question, I don't know, fill in the blank however you want to with the average. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the offensive production from another question here in a minute. But as far as another player that might hit well enough to keep track of, yeah, Colton Wong, I hesitate to ever say that because – I'm the Colton Wong person and I think people just roll their eyes when I start talking (laughs) about Colton Wong, but he proved something last year in his ability to be consistent and to be one of the better hitters on the team. So you would like to think that someone that is supposed to be the, the driving force of the offense would be the one who you'd be keeping track of there. I don't know that we really expect Colton Wong to be the driving force of the offense, but what he showed last year is that he's capable of that. So yeah, I would be very curious to see how that consistency that we saw for much of the second half will translate for Colton Wong um, in, in 2020. So yeah, I like, I like that pick and uh, we'll see if I regret saying that later on. (laughs) I I will say, I noticed uh, with Paul DeYoung that he had, a very low batting average on balls in play last year. Uh, not crazy low, but probably lower than it should be. So I wonder if, like, uh, the I was about to say the hope for him hitting 233 next year. I, I wonder <laughs> if that's misplaced just because maybe he was hitting into some bad luck. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure someone can do a deeper dive to see what exactly was going on with balls he was putting in play and such. But who knows? Maybe... Uh, maybe 233 is kind of uh, the low mark for him there. And we, we have seen, you know, he hasn't quite replicated the power he had his uh, rookie year, I guess, yeah. from a slugging standpoint. But he has really improved his hitting in other areas in terms of drawing walks and fewer strikeouts when when strikeouts for the rest of the league is going up. So, yeah, he certainly does have has shown the ability to 
change his approach or improve his approach or whatever. Yeah. And if there's one thing we know about Paul DeYoung from kind of the repeated commentary about him, it's that he's pretty smart. So if there's anyone who can maybe translate the mental side of the game to something he can apply um, to his approach at the plate, I'll be curious to see how he does that in year two of Jeff Albert. So hopefully the average will be something to watch for more reasons than just trying to match what he did the previous season. What was his major again? Like uh, some science related field, yeah. right? Uh, like I don't remember him at Piscotti and uh, we've had yeah. those smart Cardinals. Yeah. Smart, yeah. smart guys, which bodes well for them. You know, if baseball doesn't work out, but I think they're doing all right on the baseball front. So another question that ties into this from uh, the blind Homer on Twitter says, how many regular position players will the Cardinals have in 2020 with an OPS above 800? This is a very specific question. And I just said, I don't like doing predictions, but I thought this was interesting because the Cardinals need some sort of offensive firepower that they didn't have last year. And they're likely eliminating Marcelo Zuna from that mix. So Alex, what do you think as far as how many players can factor in, have an OPS over 800? Okay. So the, the only obvious one is Goldschmidt, right? I I mean, like he better have an OPS over 800 (laughs) or we're going to all be upset. So, so there's one. I don't want to say anything about Tommy Edmund, you know, sophomore slumps, uh, you know, it, what, what was the question? Will he, a regular player? Regular position okay. players, okay. yeah. So, like, you know, I, I, whether or not Tommy Edmund gets enough plate appearances qualified for the batting title, I think we can call him a regular position player yeah. most likely. Um, how many? So, just for context, yeah. last year – there were three for the Cardinals, okay. Edmund, Ozuna, and Goldschmidt, yeah. who had an OPS over 800. Okay. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say four. Okay. I'm going to say Paul Goldschmidt, Tommy Edmund, Paul DeYoung, and Matt Carpenter. Okay. With Colton Wong being fifth but missing the cut. All right. Uh, so I, obviously I'm predicting a bounce back year from Carpenter. That's more of just a hope on my part. Uh, but I'm, yeah, I'm going to also predict, I guess, uh, bigger things from Paul DeYoung. Okay. I like it. I like those four. So when I was thinking about this, I was curious how the Cardinals compared um, on this level in 2019 to some other teams. So, the Cubs last season had, this surprised me a little bit, f- well, four sort of five regular players that had an OPS over 800. I say sort of five because Castellanos did, but he mm-hmm. obviously came in late. So however you want to quantify that. But there was Rizzo, Bryant, Contreras, and, Swar- and Schwarber for the Cubs. The Brewers had six regular position players. Yelich. Thames, Braun, Grandal, Mustakis, and Hira. That surprised me. But then I looked at the Astros and the Nationals. Mm-hmm. The Astros had seven. Okay. Alvarez, Bregman, Springer, Correa, Altuve, Guriel, and Brantley. 
And then the Nationals had five regular position players with an OPS over 800. Rendon, Kendrick, Soto, Turno, and Suzuki. Turner, See, rather, and this Suzuki. This is why we were so mad at the Cardinals last yeah. year. They, they really weren't that great to watch right. a lot so of times. When you look at what other teams were doing as far as that metric, which is obviously just one way to quantify what you're doing offensively. But I mean, I feel like it's a, it's pretty telling when the Astros have seven regular position players with an OPS over 800 and the Cardinals have three. It sort of isn't hard to figure out why there was a glaring hole on the offensive side at times. So then I was trying to figure out who else could factor into this equation, right? Because the Cardinals haven't added anyone that is an 800 OPS or higher player. So in 2018, Matt Carpenter and Jose Martinez were also regular players that hit that mark. In 2017, Paul DeYoung did, as well as Dexter Fowler. So... Again, like it depends on where you draw the line for regular players, right? With the number of games or the number of plate appearances. But those guys all factored in as players who are capable of hitting that 800 OPS mark. So I, and obviously, again, if we're taking Marcelo Zuna out of that mix, which may or may not be the case, but as of right now, that's sort of, we're planning for that to be the case. Edmund and Goldschmidt, and then you're right. It kind of gets a little weird from there. Matt Carpenter is capable. Paul DeYoung is capable. Obviously, Jose Martinez is capable, but where where is he going to play? So he's likely not going to get the kind of plate appearances to maybe be regular in the lineup. Colton Wong is a bit of a wild card because can he replicate what he did in the second half last year? I think... What happens with Dylan Carlson will be really interesting to me because he's a guy that's obviously capable of that kind of production. But when will he make his way to the big leagues? Mm -hmm. We don't really know that at this point. So I sort of landed on four along with you when I'm looking at what the roster appears to be at this point. And man, that's not what you like to see in comparison to the best teams in baseball right now. No. And yeah, it goes back to uh, the point I made when I when I sort of interrupted you, which is that, and I don't think any of us have forgotten, but this was not a good offensive team last yeah. year. So I don't know. Yeah, uh, a player like uh, Dylan Carlson is, I, I guess, sort of the wild card. But we don't. Again, we don't even know if he'll be playing. And if yeah. he is playing, like we have no idea what he's going to look like at this level. Uh, so that seems. Uh, like that would seems like that would be a very bold pick, like even more bold than saying Matt Carpenter, because at least we've right. seen Matt Carpenter. You know, Matt Carpenter is barely a year removed from having a. Um, I don't have his stats in front of me, but I'm almost positive he had an above 800 OPS in 2018. Yeah, correct. I mean, mm-hmm. he had to. Yeah. He did. So, y- yeah. So, like, I don't know. I, I'm. I, there's a part of me hoping that there's going to be positive regression with a lot of players mm-hmm. next year. And whether or not that means like four or five players above uh, an 800 OPS um, or whether that just means like, uh, you know, that doesn't really matter more. So just that, you know, guys who had sort of down years at the plate, um, even Yadier Molina, um, right. you know, and I know he's getting older and there's no reason to uh, suggest like he's all of a sudden going to like be an above average hitter at this age. Um, with comparison to the rest of the league, but that doesn't mean he's going to hit as poorly as he did last year. Uh, 
And the, the same goes for Carpenter. Uh, I'm hoping Goldschmidt, even though he was one of the guys who had an above 800 OPS. I don't know. I'm just rambling here. I'm just still thinking like, yeah, where is his offense going to come mm-hmm. from? And hopefully somewhere, um, because it sounds like it's going to have to come from within. Yeah. One of the one of the questions we got was from Nicholas, who asked if a true impact bat is still a realistic option. And Nicholas, I think we would all say it's an option, but as for being realistic, it doesn't seem like that's something that this organization is particularly intent upon finding at this point, and that they would much rather, as you said, Alex, figure out some sort of (laughs) progression of some of those guys that have potential that haven't really made their mark yet to, to fill in some of that offense, but it doesn't look particularly exciting when you look down that roster and realize there are two guys that I would feel comfortable saying will have an OPS over 800 in comparison to the teams that were the best in baseball last year with five, six, seven players above that mark. That offense is probably going to be the biggest question mark because they just don't they haven't really done anything externally to fix what the problems were last year. To change gears and talk about pitching, because, well, we thought that was going to be a problem last year, and it was until it wasn't. We got a couple of questions about pitching. So from Lucas, this is a good question, and then I'm going to tie it in with something that Kyle Reese actually asked us to talk about. So Lucas, his question was, should the Cardinals have gone for more certainty or higher quality in the rotation? It's tough to ask Wayno to replicate 2019. I don't know how long Hudson can outperform his peripheral peripherals. And it's a complete question for the fifth spot. The alternatives don't get me excited either. So that's a question, Alex, is should the Cardinals have gone for perhaps more certainty in the rotation? And then we'll talk about what Kyle wanted us to talk about after that. Uh, for the first part, the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, sh- should they have? Of course they should have. Uh, Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg were uh, possibly both available. Uh, the question of would in any universe would they have pursued those guys, it doesn't seem like they would have. Uh, so we're banking on exactly what the question says, that Wainwright will uh, be a solid uh, back-end starter and that Hudson's, you, you know, Hudson's going to be one of those sinker ball pitchers who's going to make a career out of um, pitching better than his uh, peripherals. Uh, yeah. Seems risky, in my opinion. <laughs> um, I, I still don't know who we still don't know who that fifth starter is going to be. I suspect it will be Carlos Martinez, but I, but we really don't know that at this point. Um, yes, they they should have acquired another pitcher. Uh, I, I suppose um, e- even Dallas Keuchel, uh, who you know I, I think most of us would have been fine with the money that he got from the White Sox, uh, the Cardinals uh, paying that. I've seen pe- some people say that they thought it wasn't that greatest deal for a pitcher like Keuchel who's no longer quite what he once was but I I don't feel 100% comfortable with this rotation and I don't think that's breaking any ground I think that's how a lot of people feel yeah the Cardinals have for a while now done this thing where they are willing to take a risk that's not about 
money or years on an, a pitcher they bring in from outside the organization, but instead is a risk of banking on their depth at the minor league level. We've seen that work out. We've seen it be okay. I don't know that we've seen it provide a ton of confidence and a ton of that certainty that Lucas mentioned in the question. I don't know about the Adam Wainwright part of that question. I I think at this point, it's impossible to say that, yes, I expect that same kind of year from Adam Wainwright because, man, we just don't know how age is going to affect anyone at that point in their career and how healthy he's going to be able to be. But I think if he's healthy, we have no reason to expect him to not be um, at least effective in the version of Adam Wainwright that he is at this point in in his career. And that's great. But to the sort of the, the heart of the question, is that enough? Is that enough to bank on that you don't need to go get more pitching? No, probably not. And that's going to continue to be a conversation as long as this goes along. There are certainly guys who could factor in from the minor league level. One of them being Austin Gomber and Kyle on uh, prospects after dark this week mentioned that he would like for us to talk about Austin Gomber, which is funny because he said that as the answer to my question to Kyle about how Austin Gomber would factor in. So, I mean, I think Alex, the real answer is that we have no idea. He spent much of the year last year dealing with a shoulder issue reportedly is is having a regular off season uh, we should note just got married so congratulations to uh, to Austin Gomber and and his wife but what does that not 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 the wedding not the, that how does that set him up for next year but what is his role next year with the major league team we certainly don't know but i don't know call it a hunch if you will but i can imagine a scenario where Austin Gomber plays a pretty important role for the Cardinals in 2020, maybe sort of Dakota Hudson-esque in the way that he can bounce into the rotation if necessary, hold on to that spot for as long as they need him to, but also maybe be a reliable arm out of the bullpen if they need him there. Although that whole situation could get weird too, because he's lefty they're gonna have strangely a a surplus of left-handed options out of the bullpen so maybe that's not where he factors in but I guess the the super early prediction from me is don't sleep on Austin Gomber because I think he presents something that's very different than anyone else that could pitch out of that rotation and if he's healthy and someone else falters whether it's Dakota Hudson or Adam Wainwright or Carlos Martinez or pick your poison i i just wouldn't write him off as a legit legitimate option quite yet because we didn't he's been good he's certainly someone that can have a major impact i think we've seen him struggle a little bit at the major league level in being able to make adjustments right and that is what separates guys who are able to stick in a major league rotation versus guys that can't so we still have no real gauge for how he's going to improve upon that skill, but I'm, I'm excited to see what Austin Gobber can bring to the table at this point. That said, should they have added more reliability on the pitching staff? Yeah, probably. Uh, John Mozilla likes to say that you can never have too much pitching. 
I think that he should adjust that mantra to not just include any pitching, but to include a certain quality of pitching that allows you a certain comfort level with that rotation as well. Yeah, well, first off, it's absurd that Kyle is asking me a question about Austin <laughs> about Austin Gomber and not the other way around. I mean, that that'd be like some uh, who's that famous presidential historian? Uh, shoot, what's his name? White. Uh, well, whatever. It'd be like that guy asking me a question about like Franklin Pierce or, or something. <laughs> You're like, I don't know. Uh, that's you that's something. Me. Yeah, that's what I go to you for. Uh, all right, so like uh, Gomber. What throws throws what what's pretty nasty curveball doesn't have a ton of velocity on his fastball. That's pretty much what I know about him. Uh, he yeah, in 2018 he looked okay uh, at times and very very not okay at other times. Uh, what did he pitch last year? Like 40 innings maybe. Yeah, 40. Uh, and he had a really low ERA, uh, I believe. Um, so. I don't want it to be – I'll talk about Gomber in the way I'll talk about like uh, Daniel Ponce de Leon in that like I just don't want it to make a – every year it being like we're relying on these kind of uh, – and I don't know if this is what Austin Gomber is, but like these uh, kind of the stereotypical quadruple A guys yeah. to to cover like 50 to 75 innings, you know, starters innings per year. I, I would mm-hmm. prefer like what you said to go out and have more uh, – I, I guess arms out have done it at this level. So that's basically my whole commentary on Austin Gomber, which is that I'm I really don't <laughs> I'm really unqualified <laughs> to talk at length about him. Uh, and I will swing that question back to Kyle for the next time he's on prospects after dark or next time he's on here. Um, because he certainly knows more about it than I do. Or I'll look I'll look up some I know obviously Joe Schwartz likes him a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can ask Joe about him a little bit. Uh yeah, I don't know. I I, I I have some anxiety about this pitching staff, as I already said. I guess we'll see how it shakes out. We were worried about it last year, too, and for good reason. And I think it showed in the first, I don't know, eight weeks of the season why we were worried about it. Certainly kind of rounded into form as the season went along, but there's not a lot of certainty in that. I think... Jack Flaherty, we have seen what he's capable of. Miles Michaelis is a guy that may struggle every couple times out, but he's also capable of putting together a gem when he when uh, everything's going well for him. And then beyond that, it gets a little weird. And that's not a good place to be in when you're also looking at an offense that maybe has four players capable of, uh, of putting up an 800 OPS or higher. So uh, not a great... Not a great combination, at least at this point in the season. We're talking the 1st of January without a whole lot of significant changes being made. There were a couple of other questions. I don't know that we have time to dive down those rabbit holes. Frank asked about a timeline for Nolan Gorman. My really only commentary on Nolan Gorman is pump the brakes. Let him figure out the level he's at right now before we try to move him to a major league roster. Plus, there's not a place for him on the major league roster right now. So we got to figure out where Gorman's going to play as a major leaguer. And there are a couple of guys ahead of him on the depth chart. So let's 
just pump the brakes on that. I will throw this to you, Alex, because we brought it up a couple of times. Aaron asked, do you think the longer Ozuna goes unsigned, the more likely it is he winds up back in a Cardinals uniform? I don't know Mm. how that comes into play, but what do you think? Do do the odds get better for the Cardinals to re-sign him as the winter goes along? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do we want Ozuna back? Well, first things first, David McAuliffe was the name of the presidential historian I was trying to think of. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I don't know why Franklin Pierce was the first president to pop in my head. He's (laughs) he's a very unremarkable president. Uh, uh, All right. The question. Uh, Marcelo Zuna. Yeah. So he doesn't seem to have a huge market right now. There was talk about what I think the, the names I heard that seemed to make sense at least were the Reds and the White Sox. Um, at various times, and I don't know how serious those were. And both teams seem to be filling out their roster uh, without Marcelo Zuna. And it seems like the longer this goes on, and who just signed for not a ton of money? Corey Dickerson? Corey Dickerson, yes. Um, That didn't necessarily foreshadow great things for a Marcelo Mm -hmm. Zuna market. And this is kind of what we predicted, right? That, That he was going to have a tough time finding a big multi-year contract uh especially you know in in light of last year's free agency now this year has been a little uh, a lot more active um so i think that gave at least me some hope that he would that, that there was going to be a team that would uh you know sign him to uh pay him some good money um so far that's not happening is that does that mean he's going to end up with a uh like a one-year deal with the cardinals Possibly. Uh, it, it certainly looks more likely than it has at any other point in this offseason. And I, a part of me wants to say, good, uh, since we don't know who's going to be in left field uh, and the Cardinals haven't done anything to acquire a type of bat who can uh, hit, hit for an 800 OPS, which is what it did last year. On the other hand, there is a part of me that's just kind of like, a little hungover on the whole Marcelo Zuna experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the 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 defense, the kind of streaky peaks and valley hitting. Um, I don't know. I, I really don't know what the answer here is. I certainly wouldn't be bummed to have him back. Uh, he's he's a he's a great guy. Th- that's for sure. So and he's a fun guy to have on the team. He just can be a bit of a maddening player to have on a team. Uh, he's the type of player I think I would love if he was surrounded by uh, two or three reliable uh, big bats. Mm -hmm. Um, But when he's the big bat, uh, and and I hate that we've fallen into a place where we're constantly using that term, uh, but but I I understand why. But when he's the big bat, I, I don't necessarily love him as much. Yeah, I think he's just so inconsistent. He's very all or nothing. I mean, he's gonna hit two home runs a game for a week and a half and just look like you can't throw anything past him or he's going to strike out on three pitches with the bases loaded and you can't figure out how to get out of that that uh, down streak, the, the slump that he's in. So, yeah, I agree. He's a frustrating player. He was also a significant portion of the Cardinals offense that they have no significant way to replace at this point i wonder and this is sort of taking this in a different direction but i'm gonna ask it anyway um 
The Cardinals front office keeps emphasizing that they have a lot of players that they need to see what they're capable of. They need to give these guys a chance to play. If they were then to turn around and bring Marcelo Zuna back, what does that do for the narrative they've been trying to construct? I mean, I, I feel like that would be such a backtrack because look, if Marcelo Zuna is there, he's going to play. And I mean, we all know that Dexter Fowler is pretty much going to play at least until he proves he's not capable of that. And that doesn't allow for a lot of these young guys to see what they're capable of. So how, how frustrating would that be to the fan base to kind of be fed this, this theme all winter that we need to see what these young guys are capable of. But then when Ozuna kind of falls in their lap, they just throw that all out the window and go back to what they did before. Well, that's the danger of narratives uh, in that your, your primary goal should always be improving the team or putting the best product on the field as possible. Uh, And so, you know, knowing Mosaic, I'm sure he allowed plenty of wiggle room and whatever he said about wanting to give the, uh, you know, young guys a shot and and stuff. So there was definitely a, that said that followed whatever it was. (laughs) Right. Right. So I I don't know if it does much on, uh, on that front. Uh, it, It would certainly, I think, be, it would certainly be fair to raise some eyebrows, like especially if they kind of use that as an excuse as to why they weren't, um, you know, shopping for like huge end free agents like mm-hmm. Anthony Rendon or something like that. If we're going to say like, well, we can't go after Anthony Rendon because we have you know all these young guys coming up. Uh, granted, he's an infielder, not an outfielder, but still, same sort of thing. Like then it's like, well, okay, then uh, you know, obviously. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm making good sense right now because, you know, we're talking different positions, different sort of contracts, whereas, you know, Anthony Rendon is obviously a multi-year deal, whereas Marcelo Zuna could be a one-year deal. And that yeah. that's a whole different kind of ball wax and stuff. So I don't know. I, I would hope they wouldn't worry about that too much and just concentrate on building a team that they think is best to win the NL Central next year. Yeah. And then the question becomes, is Marcelo Zuna a piece that makes his team better, makes them good enough to win the NL Central next year? Or is it some of these young guys getting a chance to play? And that's, I mean, I guess that's the question they're getting paid to answer. (laughs) And we're not, we're just here answering all of your questions that you shared with us this week, which we appreciate so much because that gave us plenty to talk about on this week's episode the first of 2020 so alex let's uh let's shift our attention now to the first chirp of the week of 2020 of 2020 okay so uh it is january 1st happy happy new year everyone this is going to be a very unimportant chirp of the week but since it is january 1st i thought i would look up cardinals who were born on this date who were born on uh, New Year's and uh, sort them by wins above replacement for both uh, hitters and pitchers. And uh, for hitters, the leader in wins above replacement, at least while they're wearing a Cardinals uniform, is Fernando Tatis. (laughs) He was worth 5.5 war as a Cardinal, and he was born on January 1st, 1975. For pitchers... 
uh, the leader. There were there were only two of them, and the leader had a negative zero point three WAR, um, <laughs> uh, and it's Carl. Uh, Sheeb, uh, that's S-C-H-E-I-B. So I'm not positive I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. Uh, he only threw like four innings with the Cardinals uh, way back when. Uh, he was, And he was born on January 1st, 1927. Uh, he edged out another guy uh, who had, uh, shoot, what was his name? Uh, Royce Lint. Royce Lint was worth negative 0.6 war. Um, in 1954, which is the same year Carl Sheeb. Uh, so in, in 1954, the Cardinals had both Carl Sheeb and Royce Lint pitching for them, and they were both born uh, on, on New Year's Day. Huh. Um, and because I, I uh, you know, that didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get too much mileage out of, uh, out of this, I thought I'd also look at Cardinals who died on New, on New yeah. Year's Day and uh, do the same thing. And... Uh, first, we have Ernie Cog, I, I believe that's his name. Uh, no, Ernie Coy, I'm sorry. Uh, last name K-O-Y. And he was worth uh, 1.7 war for the Cardinals in 1940 and 1941. And he died at the age of 97 um, on January 1st, 2007. And he was the hitter in this equation. The pitcher in this equation is Carmen Specs. That's his nickname, Hill. If you look at his baseball reference page, uh, as a lot of these guys, uh, Specs was a go-to nickname uh, for anyone who wore glasses, basically, uh, back in the day. Sure. Uh, yeah, so look at his baseball reference page. You'll see why he was called Specs. But he pitched for the Cardinals in 1929 and 1930. And uh, he died on January 1st, 1990, at the age of 94. So two guys who, who lived pretty long lives. And uh, that, that's all I have for a uh, uh, New Year's Day version, or I guess New Year's Day-influenced uh, chirp of the week. Uh, do, you, do you have any New Year's Day Cardinals memories? I don't know why you would. It's a very... Uh, not active time for baseball or the Cardinals, but I'm sure any, anything. That, yeah, I'm sure that there's something that happened at the first of the year at some point. Maybe, maybe in the last decade that I've forgotten ninety percent of. But um, no, I I've, I have no recollection of Cardinals related. There's probably news. been a big trade at some point. Yeah, right? there there probably has been at some point. Like, like maybe I, I wonder if Whitey, when Whitey Herzog was doing all that wheeling and dealing, mm. uh, you know, back in the day, if if uh, any of those, I feel like those happened right around the winter meetings and leading up to uh, to the, the to the uh, coming season. So I wonder if it happened. Uh, yeah, in, in recent know. history, it feels like the Cardinals' big business has been done by Christmas. So yes, yes January right. is not uh, not very exciting. That is true. Now, I, I will say, hearkening back to a trip of the week from several uh, weeks ago or months ago, and like I said, I really do need to start archiving these so I don't start <laughs> repeating myself. If you recall, I uh, did some very elementary math and crunched the numbers for how long it usually takes the Cardinals, uh, how many years is usually between each Cardinals championship. Yeah. If I recall, 2020 was the year mm-hmm. the Cardinals are due to win the World Series. So, Big expectations for this year. Well, hopefully they come through with that. 
Um, <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how, I mean, really, these were great questions because these are a lot of things that we're going to keep talking about over the course of the winter. And as uh, we go along through spring training and seeing who makes that opening day roster and what happens from there. So thanks again to all of you for playing along and asking us questions. And if you know of any big news that happened on New Year's Day, please feel free to share that with us as well. Let me ask you a quick question before we go. Is there any part of you that hopes, uh, obviously not a big part, but is is there any part of you that kind of hopes the Reds beat everyone, at least (laughs) in the NL Central, just to teach a lesson to, uh, you know, the Cardinals uh, that, you know, you can't just sit idle in the off season because of what happened last year or because you found that perfect uh, point where you can maximize profits and also field a team that should be somewhat competitive. Like obviously uh, you know, the Cubs could win NL central too, but that's a little different because the Cubs are kind of like the Cardinals here and that they're not really going all out to improve their team. In fact, they might be worse offenders than the Cardinals. Yeah, they're certainly not making many attempts to improve. Uh, yeah, as far as the Reds are concerned, yes, there is part of me that would love for the Reds to just kind of come out of no, not out of nowhere. I mean, I think we started talking about this last year. I know I started talking about it last year with the Reds as a team that might sort of be sneaky good, and then they really weren't, so they weren't a factor, mm-hmm. at least until later in the second half, perhaps. But yeah, the Reds have been a team that has has at least made things interesting, I think, with the decisions that they've made. And I don't think there's any way you can argue that they're not trying to make their team better. What happens as a result of that is certainly to be determined. And the changes they've made don't guarantee anything. But yeah, I think I think in the, the baseball climate that we're in right now, it would be nice to have such a an immediate and comparable example of a team that intentionally made itself better on paper. And then that actually worked out in them being better um, on the field and in the results as well. Not that I'm going to be rooting for the reds, but uh, I certainly wouldn't mind if they were in fact much improved this year and, and made things interesting in the division. Me too. I think Reds fans will be insufferable if that's the case, but so it goes. Well, it's been a while since they've had a good excuse to be insufferable, so I'll allow it. That's true. That's true. It should be interesting. Um, and as John Mosellek has said before, and will continue to say for at least a little bit, there is still time in the offseason for things to get done. So maybe everything else in the NL Central will uh, kick into that same level of interesting as the Reds have been so far. But for now, that will do it for our New Year's Day episode of the show. Thanks again for listening and for joining us as we start another year of chirps and of content covering the St. Louis Cardinals and somewhat Cardinals adjacent content as we go along throughout the winter, depending on what they give us to talk about. So thanks again for your questions. Thanks for listening. As always, make sure that you're following on Twitter and if you're subscribed to the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you prefer. I think we're on most of them, if not all of them, 
You can follow Alex on Twitter at AlexCard79. I'm on Twitter at Tara Wellman. Thanks for listening. And for Alex, I'm Tara. We'll talk to you next time.